Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... I'm incredibly proud of what Aspen Medical and every single member of Aspen has delivered. And I would hope that Australians would be proud that there is an Australian-owned company headquartered here in Australia that is delivering care not only for Australians, but for people around the world. As you heard in part one, former military engineer, now Canberra-based entrepreneur Glenn Keyes co-founded the amazing Aussie business Aspen Medical, completely from scratch, using a lot of shoe leather, chutzpah and pounding of pavements back in 2003. Aspen Medical now delivers global, mobile, outsourced healthcare into remote or under-resourced or often dangerous regions anywhere in the world. In part two of our chat, Glenn reveals how the COVID-19 pandemic tested not only the resilience of his outfit, his teams and their preparedness and capabilities, but it also severely tested Glenn's own leadership skills, his strategic thinking and his ability to adapt to a whole new medical emergency. From helping operate safe infection control on the early repatriation flights from Wuhan to Australia and successfully managing quarantine for the very sick Diamond Princess crew while the ship was stranded in Japan during 2020, to helping vaccinate hundreds and thousands of Australian aged care and disability accommodation residents, as well as aged care staff, right through 2021. And all through his business journey, a key part of Glenn Keyes and his wife's life is their philanthropic commitment to disability services, sparked by the birth of their son with Down syndrome. Glenn Keyes runs under the celebrity radar. You don't necessarily hear his name, but his is a remarkable entrepreneurial story. I hope you enjoy it. Glenn Keyes, thank you so much for joining me for part two this week. Now, you've just done an an amazing job building up. What do you think has been the most important thing in the scale up, getting the Aspen Medical to the point where you are now, where you're virtually an empire? Uh, Well, we're well short of an empire, but I think one of the things that we learned along the way was to build the systems that you needed to grow. And what do you mean by that? Well, building the operational systems, building the policies, the procedures, the financial systems, putting in place, for example, lines of credit or invoice financing to manage your cash flow and your working capital. So building all of those up. But then when we scaled up, as you mentioned, for that defense contract where we doubled in size, well, that really hurt because we'd been building at a growth rate of 10, 20%, and that's fine. But to go from there to 100% growth, that really hurt. And if I look back on that, there were two mistakes we made that we tried to change now. The first mistake we made was that we knew that contract was coming. We knew we'd won it. We were negotiating it. We knew we were happening. But what we didn't do was invest heavily and upfront in all of the financial systems and the project management systems, the ERP, that we should have done 
to manage that contract. What it meant was that to manage it required an enormous amount of effort, manual effort on behalf of all of our team. And once we were in it, it was too late to do it. So we were late in investing in that that startup of that model. And the second thing that I identified was I then didn't leverage off it enough for future growth. So we were so busy and excited delivering that big contract and doing other stuff and winning other work that we didn't sit down and strategically sit down, take time away, do a full strategic plan and say, this is going to end in four years. What's coming after it? Mm. What do we do to replace it? Where do we want to be three years, five years after that? Yeah. Developing the pipeline is really important. Yeah. So the systems... To, to run operational, financial, project management, HR systems, and then what would come after it? How would we leverage that legacy for the pipeline into the future? So those were the two things we did wrong. And coming into COVID with all the work that we've done, that we've learned from those. So we've rolled out an ERP across not just Aspen in Australia, but Aspen Medical worldwide. So our operations in the Middle East, in America, in the Pacific, in Indonesia, and all across Australia, as well as taking that time to develop the strategy for our growth plan over the next 10 years. Let's go to Aspen's role in the COVID pandemic. Now, when that hit in 2020, early 2020, did you immediately know this is going to be big for us in a positive way? Or were you nervous like most businesses were at the very beginning? It wasn't actually either of those. We didn't know that that this would be this big, but we weren't nervous because we're a healthcare company. So we saw some opportunity. We started helping out immediately with provision of PPE, provision of quarantine services. We actually ran the very first hotel quarantine in Australia. We supported the quarantine of returning Australians from Wuhan in Learmonth and Howard Springs. And we ran the first ship quarantines in Japan and San Francisco Harbour, but we didn't have a sense that this was going to grow to this level at all. We saw these as opportunities, but we didn't know that. I don't think anyone assumed that he would be coming on 18 months later and and this would still be holding the country, the world to ransom the way it is. Yeah. So you have helped safely run various healthcare infection protections of the repatriation flights that you mentioned from Wuhan, some of the early hotel quarantine. You've also supplied a lot of PPE, the personal protective equipment. But let's talk a little bit about that Diamond Princess in Japan. That was quarantined in Japan at the start of COVID. Aspen got involved when the passengers from there arrived in Howard Springs in Darwin? That's right. So the passengers came into Howard Springs and we were there to support the team on the ground in Howard Springs. We supplied PPE and and a number of clinical staff up there. And so that was our, our first contact with that. And we'd been liaising with DFAT and with the cruise line operator, obviously, around that. And then I still remember a Friday afternoon at six o'clock, I'm sitting in the office and I got a phone call from the cruise line operator who said, really wanted to thank you for helping with the passengers that we've repatriated to Australia. We now have to run quarantine for all of our crew in Japan. Who were still on the boat. Who were all still on the boat. Yeah. And, And a number of them had COVID. 
No one had ever done that in Japan before. The Japanese government were very nervous, as you could understand. They were nervous about would this get into the community? How would the public feel about the quarantining of the crew? But I have to say they're incredibly professional, really, really solutions focused on what we had to do. So that was on the Friday night. I spent most of Saturday on the phone, my team on the phone, working with the Japanese government, the cruise line operator, organizing to get people up. We flew our first people out on Sunday, the rest of the team on Monday and Tuesday. The Japanese government gave us a building. It was a government university accommodation block. We took that over, brought everybody off the ship right down to the captain, ran the quarantine and had to develop all of the protocols around laundry, waste, food provision, temperature testing, all of those sort of stuff. There were no tests for COVID then. So all of those sort of activities had to be done, which we developed. We had a number of the crew have COVID. They didn't spread it to anyone else within the quarantine facility. We had to take them to hospital because they were quite ill. And then finally, everybody came out and then they were all dispersed back to their home countries from there because a lot of the crew, as you know, are international crew. There were Filipinos, Indians, Americans, Brits, Irish, all sorts of people from around the world. So you would say that that was a success, that the quarantine that you ran of the ship's crew back on the ship in Japan? Absolutely. Yeah. We had quite a large number of crews, several hundred crew, were able to quarantine them, allow the ship to be deep cleaned. None of the crew contaminated anybody else once they went into quarantine. Those that were ill with COVID were treated very safely in COVID hospitals in Japan. And then when everybody came out of their quarantine period, they were declared COVID-free and were able to return to their countries and the ship was able to return after it had been deep cleaned back to the cruise operator. So it was yeah. a it was a huge success and actually then led to them asking us to help them with the Grand Princess in San Francisco Harbour, which was really challenging because the American government would not allow the crew off the ship. So we had to work to run the quarantine on board the ship while it was deep cleaned. And so that had never been done before or since. And so wow. that was an amazing achievement. And I do have to say they were, the Americans, justifiably so, were quite nervous about contact with shore. So they would only allow us to bring over food twice a week. Uh, we'd had to close the galley because that had been identified as a hotspot. And did it spread or did you stop it successfully from spreading onto the mainland? Oh, no, we absolutely, not only did we stop it, it did not spread to the mainland, but we stopped any spread amongst the crew. But we had to work out how were we going to feed several hundred crewmen when we didn't have access to the galley. So a lot of Australian New Zealand project managers set up barbecues on the aft deck of the ship, bacon and egg rolls for brekkie every morning, sausages and salads for lunch and steak and veggies for dinner. And while that sounds good, I understand by the 14th day, everybody was over (laughs) bacon and egg rolls and sausages. Yeah, exactly. Back in Australia, you've also set up respiratory clinics for COVID. Now, who did you do that for and what do they offer? So that was, I think, a fantastic example of government at a federal, state and territory level all coming together. Oh, what, really? Absolutely. That's why I wanted to (laughs) say it. It has happened once, has it, during COVID? There it was. So the federal government engaged us to roll out respiratory clinics. We were told of site, the federal government worked with 
the state territory health authorities to go down to what's called primary healthcare networks. So they operate at local levels. And those primary healthcare networks identified GPs where there could be who were interested in having a respiratory clinic established. They then told us, here are the GP clinics in these jurisdictions. And we went, ordered them to check that they were going to be able to be built? Could we fit them in? Did they have enough real estate? Could we get the workflow? And then we passed those reports up. Some of them were perfect. Some of them needed some work. Some of them weren't going to work. And then the federal government negotiated directly with those GPs, cut a contract for them to run the respiratory clinics. Then we came up set them up and we did it, set up everything, the buildings, the tentage, the what's called wayfinding. So all of the signage, all of the IT systems, all the policies, procedures and equipment did all of the training for the GPs. And then the GPs on the ground in their local environment with the people they knew took over running them. We set up over 150 I think over 120 are still operating today and they started off as respiratory clinics, then they became testing clinics and now they're vaccination clinics. And I think that that engagement that travels all the way from a federal level through the state, through the PHN, down to the local GPs and out to every single citizen in that area, I think that was a great example of what could be done when we're all working together in this sort of environment. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult for you in one way because the feds, you're their clients, but how would you say the vaccine rollout? I mean, so many people in the community have been criticising it. It's been way too slow. You've been helping with the vaccine rollout, haven't you? Yeah, we have. We're engaged to initially help with aged care residents and then with disability residents and then with aged care staff. And so It's very difficult because there's never been a program like this before. We've never had to try to vaccinate 80% of the population in such a short period of time. Even when we have the flu vax, there's nowhere near that number of people get the vaccine. And of course, we could spread it out over a long period of time. So look, it has been challenging. I think everyone would like it to have been faster. But if you look at it like we did with respiratory clinics, it took us a time to start You've got to survey, you've got to get out there, you've got to engage. But we rolled out 122 clinics in the first five weeks once we got Mm. started. Have a look now, Australia's delivering almost quarter of a million vaccines into people's arms every 24 hours. And so those numbers are really, really ramping up. And yes, it was slow at the start, but I think it was just, it was hard. I think you're being very kind. There was perhaps even most of last year wasted with not putting enough orders for vaccines in with those big overseas companies. Yeah, well, we were trying to make bets, weren't we? Everybody was trying to bet on which vaccine would get there and then which would get through TGA approval. Yeah, well, maybe all the eggs should have been backed rather than just one. But now you've also supplied staff for aged care homes through the COVID crisis in 2020. Is that right? You're one of a number of providers? Yeah, so we were initially contracted to provide what's called a clinical first responder. And their job was to go into a facility if they asked for it and audit the facility and see were they up to control with all of their infection prevention and control, with all their PPE, donning and doffing, how they got rid of waste, all of that sort of stuff. number of the facilities went into were fantastic. They were absolutely uh, set up well, trained well, and we could just go through them and give them a tick. Some of them needed a little bit of work. You need to manage your bio waste better or you need to manage how you take things on and off. And there were a few that really were in in quite terrible straits that required quite a lot of work. 
We never took over a facility. We only ever provided staff, but we were meant to be providing staff in rural and remote. And then if all of the other opportunities weren't able to support areas in metropolitan areas, we would then come in and provide support if we could into metropolitan areas. And so far, I think we've provided over 11,000 days of care support across aged care and disability facilities, predominantly in Victoria and New South Wales, but some of the other jurisdictions as well. But Glenn, how many people have you vaccinated in the aged care residents, then the disability accommodation residents and now aged care staff? There were still a lot of gaps in those people being vaccinated, aren't there? Yeah, you've got to remember that when we started, people had to agree. So they had to agree to be vaccinated. And we saw real differences between the aged care facilities. You go into one facility, I remember we went in, we turned up and obviously it wasn't a lockdown at that time. They had family members there. They had a sausage sizzle going. The uh, CEO of the, of the facility was there getting their jab first. And, and so in those facilities, we were getting 90, 95% of the residents coming forward to being vaccinated. Under the policy, if we had spare vaccine, we would vaccinate staff as well while we were there. But if you went to another facility where they just sent out the forms that said it's happening on this day, send it back, the percentages could be quite low. Yeah, right. So a lot of it was around how we engaged, how we explained, how those things were done for the families and carers. And as we all know, there was a huge amount and still is misinformation about the vaccines and about what it means. And so a lot of people were very, very uncertain, but we've delivered hundreds of thousands of vaccines now into aged care and disability care facilities around Australia. And we're not the we're not the only provider. We're one of only several delivering vaccines. Yeah, well, I know you've set up kind of like pop-up vax clinics in some of the disability services, as you say, like Cerebral Palsy Alliance. And in late August, you set up one in Newcastle. Yes, we've just moved. Uh, we've got two now in Newcastle. We had one when a uh, provider called uh, Life Without Barriers very strong in the region there. And then we've now opened up a, another one in Wall's End and another one in Hunter Street. So we've got several going on in, in Newcastle. Glenn, you're not a charity, to be clear, nor are you a not-for-profit. You are a commercial business, so you don't go into these dangerous places as volunteers. You get paid by governments or NGOs to deliver the, the health services you provide. Now, during coronavirus, the AFR reported in December 2020 that you booked a massive 650% revenue lift in the financial year 2020. What do you say to people who might raise their eyebrows a little bit about that Aspen has profited so well out of the COVID pandemic and providing medical assistance? We're proud of what we've been able to do. I think as a wholly owned Australian company, I'm a veteran, so it's a veteran owned company. We don't have any private equity. We're not foreign owned. All of our profits are paid in Australia. All of our workers comp, our taxes are paid here. We've got a very strong foundation and we're very connected to community here in Australia and, and wherever we operate overseas. I 
personally, and obviously I'm biased, it's, it's our company, but I'm incredibly proud of what Aspen Medical and every single member of Aspen has delivered. And I would hope that Australians would be proud that there is an Australian-owned company headquartered here in Australia that is delivering care not only for Australians, but for people around the world. And an alternate you know, an alternate scenario might be that we didn't get that work and a foreign-owned company did. And so is the alternative better that a foreign-owned company delivered that work in Australia and took those profits offshore, took that experience offshore, and didn't create a capability that could deliver a service to Australia and the region? Uh, yeah. I personally think it's fantastic that there's an Australian company that can do that and that we can stand on the international stage, do work for the US government, do work for the World Health Organization, operate for the UAE government, for the US government. We're delivering vaccines across the US and in the Pacific and in Africa. I'm really proud of that. And I would hope that other Australians would be proud that we do that too. Glenn, most of your very large health department contracts through COVID were to secure medical supplies, as we understand it, for the national stockpile. You also got hold of a huge amount of personal protective equipment at a very rapid rate. How did you pay for that at the time? Because, of course, everyone in the world was fighting to get hold of good quality PPE equipment. Was it a global bun fight? Oh, it absolutely was. And there were a, a huge number of really very unethical providers out there as well. Australia was generally very lucky, or maybe we were very clever and canny in our purchases, but there are documented examples of hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gowns bought in the UK that were completely unacceptable. The arms fell off them. There were masks that were not made to any standard. There were gloves that were not sanitised. So Australia had almost none of that occur. And I think that how we procured it was based on we had networks into a range of providers internationally. We have really strong quality management systems and we're a healthcare company. So we knew what we were buying. You know, a lot elsewhere in the world, there were people who made boxes or shirts or whatever, suddenly deciding to go and buy PPE. No idea what they were procuring, no idea what to ask, and no idea what to check on. So how did you pay for it at the beginning when you had to buy it very quickly? Once again, we went back to the well and we bet the farm. So we- What do you mean? We knew we had a big order coming in. We knew it was very, very important for the federal government to get it. We knew the demand, particularly now in China, was enormous because there were companies, there were Americans, there were other people walking in and just paying 100% for the orders over other people. So we knew we had to secure our orders. We had got really good quality providers who we trusted the quality of their material and we had contracts, but we had to pay a significant deposit. So came home, spoke to my wife. We pretty much emptied everything we had into the company accounts. And I sat down with the CFO and it was Saturday night at 11 o'clock and we had to make the payment before midnight. And he said, I can make the deposit, but I've got to empty everything. I've got to empty oh. every single account that Aspen has plus the money that, that you have loaned us. And I said, uh, well, if we don't do it, we don't secure this purchase. And if we don't secure this purchase, I have no idea how long it will take to get this stock for the National Medical Stockpile. So I said, sweep the light. And so he 
sat there and said, I'm just going to take a photo of what it looks like before and after. And he swept all the accounts. We paid the deposit. We had confirmation from them that night that we had it and we secured it. But it was one of those moments where you walked right to the edge. You looked into the abyss. Oh, would have been completely hair-raising and frantic. And then I presume governments might be relatively slow to pay. So you really had to dig into your own pockets. Look, I have to say, and, and you know, of course they're our customer, but but we work very well with the federal government. They did bend over backwards to make the payment as quickly as they could, faster than you would normally get. We weren't dealing on 30-day terms or whatever, but it wasn't. If you've emptied every single account you have, you really want to be paid as fast as possible. And yeah. so getting those funds in took some time and, and that required management by all of our team and commitment by our team to make that happen. If for some reason they hadn't paid or the suppliers had all taken our money and run, that was the end of the company. Mm, wow. That, that is seat of the pants stuff. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. But when you say it's seat of the pants stuff, I don't believe, as I said before, it was reckless. I believe that we knew what we were doing. We knew where the risks were and I thought we could mitigate them. I had good relationships with the department and I had commitments that the money would come. And so we thought, this is a risk we're prepared to take. And we did. At the end of 2019, before COVID hit, your original partner, Andrew, you bought him out. Now, was the ending of that partnership all amicable? Oh, it was amicable as buying out any other shareholder is. Yes, we signed that on, we finalised all of the documentations on Christmas Eve. So therefore we all celebrated for Christmas and then all of the funds were processed and the deal was completed on New Year's Eve. So we got to celebrate New Year's Eve as well. So I think both of us were happy with the deal. We obviously signed it. And I think that allowed us both to pursue how we would take the companies from there. Glenn, I want to talk to you just fairly briefly because I know it could be a whole nother interview about your philanthropic side. And you've very much involved your family in your career journey, your entrepreneurial journey. Was that sparked by the birth of your son who was born with Down syndrome? My engagement, our engagement with the disability community was absolutely sparked by the birth of Aaron. We didn't know that Aaron would have Down syndrome until about 45 minutes after he was born. So that came as a surprise for us. But my wife is a social worker and had worked in the the healthcare sector for some time. I had no idea. And so I had to get up to speed and, and Mel has been amazing in that journey for me, but also in developing Aaron and, and giving him a rich, full and normal life as, as well as our, our two other children around him as well. Yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a great story. You, you talk about him a lot. Now, tell us what is Project Independence? Yeah, so Project Independence is, is a, an idea It's about 10 years old now, but we've really continued to grow and develop. Project Independence is home ownership for people with an intellectual disability. So if you have an intellectual disability in Australia, you have one of the lowest home ownership rates in the country. And when governments, be they state, territory or, or federal, talk about housing affordability, you know, fairly they're talking about 20 somethings, maybe with a child trying to buy a house. But, but there is really nobody focusing on people with an intellectual disability trying to buy a home. 
And back when we had all of that stimulus budget money coming out, remembering after 08, and there are a lot of things built. And one of the things that were built was social housing. And a friend of Aaron's had moved into a property here in Canberra, and we were over there for his birthday, and we were being shown around the house, and it was fantastic. And I really liked the look. They had a live-in resident coordinator who would cook a meal. He had his own room, a courtyard, and his own bathroom. And I thought, this might be something that Aaron might like in the future. And one of the directors was there, and I said, it's great. I'd really be interested in seeing whether I might get Aaron on the waiting list. He said, yeah, yeah, we have 281 people on the waiting list. Oh, And and I thought, Aaron won't get in before he dies. So, you know, as you do, you're at a barbecue, chatting away, a couple of sausages, two beers later. I said to someone, you know, we need to build more of these. We need places like this. And a couple of the other fathers said, yeah, that's a great idea. So I called them up the next day and said, look, can we get together and talk about how we'll make that happen? That's where we started. But it was really going to be that model of build them and rent them. And a couple of years into Project Independence, when we're trying to build our thinking and the philosophy, Mel and I, my wife and I did a knockdown rebuild and we were moving back into the house. And I said to Aaron, can you give me a hand to unpack some boxes? He said, I can't, I'm really busy. What are you busy (laughs) on? You can't unpack a box. He said, I'm designing the house I want to buy when I leave home. I'll be honest with you, it's like a bit of a slap in the face because I thought I'd expected our other kids would buy a home. Why hadn't I expected Aaron? And it was an unconscious bias on my behalf. So I went back to the committee the next day and said, we're going to change the model. We're going to sell them the units. And everyone said, well, how will that work? You know, a lot of people are only on the disability support pension. And so we worked through the model. We said, well, let's assume it's successful. Assume they can buy it out of the pension and let's work back from there. And we developed the model. We've secured blocks of land. We've built 20 houses already in Canberra. We've had residents in there for over two years. Next month, we start building the next 10 in Canberra. We have 57 people on the wait list for those. And two weeks ago, very excited, we secured our first property in Melbourne. We have 200 people on the wait list in Melbourne. We'll be expanding Project Independence into Melbourne. And we've got a developer in Sydney who's approached us to provide a part of their development in Sydney. And we've got people on the waiting list to expand into Sydney. And we're now looking at how we expand the model out. So we said, if it'll work for people with an intellectual disability, will it work for other disadvantaged homeowners? And the answer is yes. So we're now expanding the model out into the the next two most disadvantaged homeowner groups, older women with no superannuation or savings, the second largest group of homelessness in Australia, and uh, women and families escaping domestic violence. So may sound a little radical, but I think we can revolutionise how social housing is provided in Australia and perhaps even internationally. As the only model like it in Australia and perhaps the world, we think we have an enormous opportunity to change that model and get people out of social housing and into home ownership. It's just very exciting. Yeah. So, Glenn, is this a not-for-profit or is this a for-profit project for you? Uh, absolutely. It's a, it's a not-for-profit. It's registered with the ACNC. We're yep. registered with the National Register of Social and Community Housing, the NRCH. And all of our board members, myself and our board members, all provide all of our services for free. In actual fact, all of the initial funding to kick off Project Independence came from my wife and I, from Mel and I. 
That's extraordinary. So that leads me into, and and I don't want a big sort of treatise on this, but I'm really interested in your view about the impact of wealth on you and and your view of philanthropy. I mean, you've built this business into a, a pretty massive business in what, 17, less than two decades, 17 years. How do you view wealth and its impact on you? I think I was very lucky in that mum and dad always seemed to have money, they, but they were never flashy about it, but they always supported other people. And I knew that they supported family, they supported friends, and they were very generous, but they were also very grounded. And so we never felt the need to, you know, have six houses or own an island or get a helicopter or any of that sort of stuff. And i don't think I need that. And certainly our view of how Mel and I own Aspen and the image we have in Aspen is that we're a company, yes, we make a profit, but we have a strong social purpose at our core. We believe that we can benefit the shareholders and benefit community. We can make a profit, but we can make a difference. My father passed away a few years ago and uh, Mel and the kids and I went up to, to clean out the house and uh, dad had lived at the same house for almost 40 years. So there was a lot to clean out. And I think what we did was we all got to the end of that and said, we just have too much stuff. And so I'm the master of marketplace. We have just, if there's stuff we don't need, we get rid of it. And I just think we're incredibly lucky. You know, I I think I'm so privileged and lucky with what I've got that if we don't give back to others, if we don't help where we can, if we don't provide that support to those who need it, well, we deserve a bit of a slapping if we're not prepared to do that. Does that sort of cover it for you? It does, indeed. Glenn, just a, a couple of quick questions to finish off. What's the toughest thing you faced in your career journey? Um, well, the first was to leave the military and start your own business, go into a startup. That was really hard. You know, I'd been effectively a public servant. I had a guaranteed salary. Pretty much if I kept breathing, I'd have a job. And so to leave the military and go and do this startup, uh, that, that was really hard to do, but I loved it. The next big one would have been starting Aspen Medical because I was now leaving, working for a multinational. Once again, I had a career profile. I had a great paying job. We had a young family. We've got a child with a disability and we're about to leave all of that and start a brand new enterprise that we didn't even have a template to copy. We Mm. were trying to create a brand new company. So that was a huge challenge. And, And not only did I could I think I sell and we had a great idea, but I had Mel and the family behind me providing support every minute of the day to make that happen. And then the final one was probably when we bought out Andrew and we agreed that we were going to take the company in a different direction. That was really challenging because we'd had a partnership for you know, over a decade and a half. Mm. We had different things to do with the company. And so, we both came to an agreement that I would buy him out and we'd take the company in a direction and he would carry on in a different direction. But we were able to make that decision in a, in a structured way. Yeah. And what different direction are you taking it in? So we made a decision that we would invest in the growth of the company rather than try to scale back after we'd lost those, you know, quite large contracts. And so we really invested in the social purpose of what the company was going to be, in the growth opportunities, in pursuing new business and investing in new parts of the business, even investing in the ERP. 
an ERP for the for the uninitiated? Yeah, the enterprise resource planning contracts, the systems that would allow us to grow and tap into all of those systems worldwide. So we really invested in the social purpose and the systems and the people of the company. And that that meant taking no profit, taking no dividends, investing back into the company. But that put us in an incredibly strong position when these opportunities came up at the beginning of last year, not just in Australia, but worldwide. The COVID opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Glenn, and finally, what would you say to others, perhaps young people who might want to pursue an idea or a dream for a business? Look, you have to be so passionate about whatever it is that you want to pursue. That passion that you have, that's what's going to carry you. You want to listen to other people. You want to have them challenge you. Don't dismiss what people say. Listen, incorporate it, work out. If someone's got a negative, all right, how do I counter that? How do I deal with that? And how do I use that to be even stronger into the future? But all else fails, back yourself at the farm. Glenn Keyes, the creator and founder and chief executive of Aspen Medical. It's been a great pleasure speaking to you. Thanks so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. It had such an illustrious history of people on. I feel very lucky to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Glenn. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.